If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the August 25th edition of I Am Are You? The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Chris Wilson. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pride. Well, last week, I Am Are You celebrated its 40th birthday, the age at which life supposedly begins, despite the subsequent urge to nap more often. So tonight, we'll finish what we started at the birthday party and share the conclusion of our 1978 interview with Harvey Milk. Plus, I'll share a heartwarming look at a heartbreaking film that has an LGBT theme. It's called Love is Strange. And out singer, songwriter, composer, producer, musician extraordinaire Lindsay Tomasic will join us in studio. Is that all she does? Yeah, she's, she's an underachiever. She's got goddess qualities, too. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Natalie Peoples. And I'm Jason Proctor. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending August 23, 2014. The U.S. Department of Labor has made official what the Obama administration had promised, issuing specific guidelines banning discrimination by federal contractors based on gender identity. The directive springs from a 2012 court ruling that transgender federal employees are protected under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which bans federal bias based on gender. Director Patricia Hsu of the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs wrote on the White House blog in an August 19th post titled Strength in Diversity that... Today, we issued guidance clarifying that sex discrimination extends to gender identity and transgender status. Inclusiveness isn't just good for workers, it's smart for business. President Obama signed an executive order in July banning discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity by federal contractors, so the Labor Department is complying with both the judicial ruling and the executive order. Chelsea Manning said this week that she's still being denied the gender transition treatment she's been promised. The U.S. Army private formerly known as Bradley Manning is serving 35 years in the military prison at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, for providing thousands of classified U.S. military damning documents and videos to WikiLeaks. An announcement in July said that Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel had approved the start of her treatment. In a statement to NBC on the first anniversary of her coming out as transgender, Manning said that she's been unable to live her authentic self. Prisons, especially military prisons, reinforce and impose strong gender norms, making gender the most fundamental aspect of institutional life, she said. 
I just want to be able to live my life as the person that I am and to be able to feel comfortable in my own skin. An Army spokesman claimed that the Department of Defense has approved a request by Army leadership to provide required medical treatment for an inmate diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Treatment for the condition is highly individualized and generally is sequential and graduated. Amnesty International has called for Manning's immediate release. The American Civil Liberties Union has threatened to sue the U.S. military if she's not given access to the treatment she needs and has been promised. In this week's U.S. marriage news, a federal judge joined four state courts this week to declare Florida's ban on civil marriage for same-gender couples unconstitutional. Federal District Judge Robert Hinkle ruled that the 2008 voter-approved ban violates the U.S. Constitution's equal protection and due process guarantees. He compared bans on civil marriage for lesbian and gay couples to the long-abandoned prohibitions on interracial marriage and predicted that both would be viewed by history in the same way. But Hinkle immediately stayed his ruling to allow for an expected appeal. Judges in four Florida counties had previously issued similar rulings, but they've also been put on hold after the state's Republican Attorney General Pam Bondi filed appeals. She had asked earlier this month that no further marriage equality rulings be made, saying it was up to the U.S. Supreme Court to make a final determination on the issue. And she's vowed to vigorously defend Florida's ban, saying this week that she was just getting started. The twice-divorced Bondi is up for re-election in November. U.S. District Judge Richard Young, the same federal judge who found Indiana's voter-approved ban unconstitutional in June, reaffirmed that decision in a separate case this week by ordering the state to recognize the civil marriages of same-gender couples legally performed elsewhere. Young's earlier ruling did not include a stay, and hundreds of gay and lesbian couples married in Indiana before the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals stopped them. With that in mind, Judge Young immediately stayed this week's ruling on out-of-state marriages pending an expected appeal by Republican Governor Mike Pence to the Seventh Circuit. That court is already scheduled to hear the state's appeal of Young's June ruling. It should come as no surprise that the U.S. Supreme Court has stayed a marriage equality ruling in the state of Virginia that was set to take effect this week. The Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a federal judge's ruling declaring the ban unconstitutional in July and last week refused to delay implementation of the ruling. The state then asked the Supreme Court to step in. The High Court has issued stays of similar rulings whenever a state has asked it to do so. Justices are widely expected to finally rule on opening civil marriage to same-gender couples in their next session or in the one thereafter. The 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has indefinitely extended a trial court judge's stay of his July ruling that found Colorado's ban on civil marriage for same-gender couples federally unconstitutional. The stay was set to expire within days. A few county clerks defied direct orders by the state's Republican Attorney General John Southers and issued marriage licenses to same-gender couples after a federal appeals court with jurisdiction over the state ruled such bans to be unconstitutional. Southers then got the state Supreme Court to issue an order stopping them. Another marriage equality case is pending in Colorado's high court. And finally, a poll in Ireland this week by the UK's Sunday Times newspaper found 86% support for same-gender relationships. There will be a referendum on marriage equality in the country next year. While prospects for opening civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples in Ireland seem rosy, 
Polls are notoriously unreliable there, and LGBT activists are taking no chances. A long-form video by the Irish activist group LGBT Noise lampoons opponents of marriage equality who believe it will be the end of the world. In this snippet, a paranoid heterosexual couple behind a barricaded front door prepares a homemade video testament to the coming Armageddon. This is our story. I don't know if there's anyone out there to hear it, but... Any of our kind, anyway. But it's important to leave a record of what's happened here. Back in 2015, Ireland had a referendum on marriage equality. Sure, we weren't one bit worried. We thought it best it'd be close. As far as we knew, there was maybe five or six gays operating in Ireland at that time. We figured if it was just them, things would stay the way they were. But it was their friends. Non-gays? Normal people. They marched. They voted, loads of them. They said things like people should be able to love whoever they want, even though they could do that already. There was, there was nothing in it for them at all. I mean, if they hadn't voted, everything would have been fine, but they did. And everything changed. So much equality. Ireland was practically unrecognizable. You can find the marriage equality group behind that over-the-top satire at lgbtnoise.ie. That's News Wrap for the week ending August 23rd, 2014. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap was produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Natalie Peoples. And I'm Jason Proctor. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest this way out, including more news wrap on free podcast and Stitcher Radio On Demand and at thiswayout.org or on iTunes. Also on the program this week, out former U.S. big leaguer Billy Bean bats for baseball inclusivity and sapphic nomads find life behind the headlines in India. And now let's take a look at Pride on Screen. You said it with such love. I do. Ira Sachs' film, Keep the Lights On, was my pick for best LGBT film of 2012, so I was really excited to see his latest offering, Love is Strange, starring John Lithgow, Alfred Molina, Marissa Torme, and Cheyenne Jackson. And you know what? It doesn't disappoint. My name is Ira Sachs, and I'm the co-writer and director of Love is Strange. Love is Strange is a film about two men played by... John Lithgow and Alfred Molina, who are in a relationship for 38 years. They get married at the beginning of the film, and as a result, one of them loses their job, they both lose their apartment, and they have to temporarily separate, moving into separate homes. Now, we invited you all here today because, well, your family. Are you telling us you're getting divorced already? That's what I thought, too. No, we, uh, we have to sell the apartment, and we found a buyer already. So pretty soon, we're going to have to move out. Now, it won't be long before I get another job, and it uh, shouldn't be long before we find another apartment, but in the meantime... It's just a transition phase, probably just a week or two. We need a place to stay. One moves in with the two gay cops who live downstairs, and the other with his nephew and wife in Brooklyn. And the film is really about this relationship between... 
Lithgow and Molina, and these two men have been together for so long and how they counter this obstacle, but it's also about love and the multi-generations and how we look at love from different points in our life. What inspired this movie? I, in my 40s, felt ready for love, and I think for many different reasons. All my recent films, all my life, really, previously, love, to me, had been a steady road downward. (laughs) As a gay person, I think I'm not unique, and I, I think we're not unique, in that it took me a long time to like myself. I came out of the closet when I was 16, but I just started creating a lot of other secrets. And secrecy was a real part of how I lived my intimate life. At 40, everything changed. And I really became, for the first time, an honest person trying to reveal as much of myself, not as little. And I think in a way I became ready to love in a different kind of way than I had before. I met my partner, who's now my husband, Boris Torres, who's a painter. And he's a wonderful guy. But that's not really the reason why the relationship works. I think the relationship works because I've changed and I'm more ready. And I wanted to make a film about a relationship between two men in which you could see that there was a possibility for love to blossom with time. You guys new in the neighborhood? Are you kidding? There was a famous sip-in right here in this bar to challenge the New York State regulation that prohibited bars from serving homosexuals. Yeah, we have a clipping from the New York Times friend here somewhere. 1966, me and four other guys, we came in here accompanied by five reporters. When we were denied service, we denounced the state liquor authority. Oh my God, you're that guy? No, it's one of the guys. Wow. This runs on me, fellas. Someone said to me, would you be able to make this film five years ago? And I thought, no, I couldn't make it, not just because I wasn't, this isn't how I experienced love, but I don't think this relationship is so fully embraced publicly and personally by this community of friends around these two characters. And I think that's something that's really new as well. What was your takeaway from making this film? It's not just specific about being gay. I think it's for me about being not so young, somewhere in the middle, I hope, of my life. In the middle of one's life, you're aware that it's shorter than you thought and that it's not going to last forever. And I think this film is about an older couple, but it's really about I think of it as a middle-aged film, to be honest. It's a film about perspective because it's also about this young kid who's 15 years old and discovering love for the first time. It's about Marissa Tomei and Darren Burroughs who are in the middle of their life questioning what does love look like at that age. And then it's about John and Alfred Molina who are towards the end, you know, coming towards a different chapter. So for me, there's some humility that this age brings to myself and I think my filmmaking as well. John Lithgow's portrayal of Ben was so beautiful, and it broke my heart. What was interesting talking to John about this role as soon as he read the script is he felt that Roberta Muldoon, who's the character in Garp, that this was the character most like himself since Roberta Muldoon. And that Roberta Muldoon, really what he needed to do was reveal himself as an individual in trans role, but not so different than who he was. And that's the case, I think, with the character of Ben, is that John is really playing a version of himself with great comic timing and great talent as an actor.
What do you want audiences to take away from the film? I want them to be moved, and I want them to be maybe aware more gently of how limited life is. And I want them to be, I always want people to be forgiving of themselves when they see a movie, that somehow they understand themselves better and are a little less harsh. So I hope that they feel an intimacy with these characters and in so learn something about themselves that makes them feel good. This has been a conversation with Ira Sachs, director and co-writer of Love is Strange. Find out more about this movie online at sonyclassics.com slash loveisstrange. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I see your face in this room full of faces I'm trying hard not to stare Strange to see you again Here of all places That's him over there Love is Strange is playing all over town here in L.A. It's playing in New York, and it's opening across the country, I think, this week as well. And that was a lovely interview. Thank you. And don't think that I am not going to try that. I'm a piece of history, young man. Buy me a drink trick. (laughs) I love that. Anyway, we heard part one of IMRU's 1978 interview with Harvey Milk last week. Rhetorically, I ask, would you like to hear the conclusion? Why, yes, Winslow, we would. Yes, sir. Then let's. She called you sir. (laughs) I love that. As difficult as it is, you must tell your immediate family, you must tell your relatives, you must tell your friends if indeed they are your friends, you must tell your neighbors, you must tell the people you work with, you must tell the people in the stores you shop in. Once they realize that we are indeed their children and we are indeed everywhere, Every myth, every lie, every innuendo will be destroyed once and for all. And once, once you do, you will feel so much better. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm a supervisor in San Francisco. And I'm Greg Gordon for IMRU. What about the reasonably well-off gay couples or gay singles in the hills somewhere who never have had any trouble with the police, who've never, you know, they can say, that's never happened to me. Right. I, you okay. know, why should I get involved? Let me, uh, my life is beautiful. Right. <laughs> I.e., that reminds me of the wealthy Jews in Nazi Germany when, when Hitler first was picking up the Jewish communists and Jewish socialism. They were, they, were, they were scum. That's not us. We are accepted. You know, we've been accepted. We, we ride in the back of the bus. It's like the Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. And believe me, when Hitler started having the concentration camp, he didn't care if you were a Jewish socialist or Jewish uh, fascist. You were Jewish, you went. When the Briggs and Anita Bryan take over, they don't care if you are the accepted hairdresser or the gay doctor or the gay lawyer or the gay society person. You are gay, you will go off. And if they don't, if you don't, I mean, if that sounds like a, a stereotype thing, stop and think Nazi Germany what it did to the gay people. There were 600,000 gay people killed. Prior to Hitler's taking over in the 20s, the gay movement in Germany was more advanced than the gay movement in San Francisco in 1978. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a statewide, uh, a nationwide 
convention of gay people in Germany, 8,000 gay people. We've never had anything like that here. Um, there were letters written to the Reichstag uh, telling them to throw out the anti-gay laws. Scientists, doctors, uh, everybody was preaching for gayness and acceptability. In Russia, 1917, they threw out the anti-gay laws. And then Stalin took over. And that was the end of the gay movement. Hitler took over, then the gay movement. And if you think history doesn't repeat itself, you're crazy. And the only defense about that is it's not just to be organized, but to, to get involved and to realize who the common enemy is. Unfortunately, within the gay community, we have uh, such a class distinction and racism within the gay community and sexism within the gay community because uh, some people think they're better than the rest. Um, when it comes down to it, we all do the same thing. And the elitists in the gay community, those who are accepted, those who are the Uncle Toms, those who have sold out, must realize that when the push comes to shove, that if Senator Briggs wins against the gay school teachers, uh, the next thing he may say is, we don't want gay people to vote. Well, in Oklahoma, they just passed a law, you know, forbidding gay people to teach, and the same man who sponsored that says he's going to sponsor a law prohibiting gay people from running for public office. Right. So it's right. one and step at a time. And when my gay, elitist, wealthy brother or sister says, I don't have to worry, I don't get in trouble with the police, I don't go to the bars, I don't go to this, Okay, it's that old story in Germany. You know, first it was the gays and the gypsies and then the Jews and they kept going and finally there was nobody to protest. You got to stop them at the beginning. They got to get involved. The gay elitists, the gay wealthy people, the gay society people, the gay people who have made it, they have to fight the battle now. In many they cases, they're in, a, they're in the better positions to be able to do it. Too. And they also in a position to lose more. Because the gay street person, i.e. whatever that means, what does that person got to lose? by fighting the battle. Well, that's why they were out in the front right, at the beginning. Right, But the, the, the well-to-do, those who have made it, they've got a lot to lose. They've got to lose what they're worried about. And uh, they're the ones who have to come through, and if they want to stay in their closet and so forth, fine, but get their checkbooks out of the closet. It's needed. It's desperately needed that their checkbooks come out of the closet. Uh, the only, I mean, I know the power I have as elected official in this city. It's incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm restricted by the charter of what I can do or I can't do, but boy, can I do it. <laughs> and I know that when I speak out in this city, I mean, the police department is nervous, the Chamber of Commerce is nervous. Uh, they, I know the power I have. And if you don't start, uh, whoever's listening, if you don't start helping electing gay people, and not just gay people, but gay fighters, who will get up and not take it uh, and sit back, We'll fight for it. If you don't start electing it, uh, we ain't going to be in trouble. Um, so people, gay street people have to register and vote, and they have to realize that it cannot be um, the, only voting for the people who believe in every single thing they do. You know? There's no such thing. There's no such perfect candidate. You know, uh, is They have to compromise and bend to realize things. And the gay person who is uh, living in the hills has to realize that he or she can't only support the conservative type people or the respectable type people. That uh, the, the we both have to lose. If you, you both will lose. And if you don't get together, and you've got to join hands now, it's, it's, it's desperate. It's desperate. We had a couple of gay people running in uh, as candidates for assembly in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles districts 44th and 46th. Uh, some political gay, gay political clubs did not endorse them. Uh, 
I'm not going to be critical. I don't want to get into that issue. But what I want to ask you is, what happens when you have a, two or three or four gay political groups or gay organizations that are in a position to help, but who cannot seem to get together? Because obviously, you've got to have a coalesced movement in order to elect somebody. What can you say to these people? In my first three attempts to run, I've run four times if I win, I was never supported by the gay establishment. I was never supported by the gay political leaders. I was never supported by the gay clubs. And the reason why is if I won, I would have been what I am now that I won. And they would no longer be the top of the hill. They don't realize that there's room at the top for a lot of people. They wanted to be, they rather have been the Uncle Tom in the back of the bus, or the Aunt Mary as I call them, and have be the token, be the first to discover Barbara Streisand, to be, you know, the, to, the token fag, rather than to see a gay person elected and the power go that way. They didn't realize there's room for plenty. And I have found out in San Francisco, the so-called gay leaders of the time, the Jim Forsters and all those people, they were for themselves, they were not for the gay movement. That their attitude was so offensive that they would back straight people. I found that their influence was such that they brought Elaine Noble 3,000 miles across country to campaign for a straight person against me, a gay person, both of whom she had never met. But the gay leadership of this city, whatever it was, which was self-appointed leadership, was more anti-gay. They were homosexuals, mm -hmm. but they were anti-gay because they didn't believe it. They were afraid that somebody else would get the power. Everybody wants to be the first. Everybody wants to be it so they can walk around with the glory. And those people are the ones who don't believe in the gay movement. They believe in themselves and what they can get out of it. We had it in San Francisco. And even this year, Alice B. Toklas would never support me. Um, some of the other gay That's Democrats... You're referring, for those who don't know, to the right. Alice B. Toklas Democratic Club, right. which is the version of the Stonewall Democratic right. Club in Los Angeles. And, and, um, some of the other Democratic clubs this time did. They finally realized what it was all about. And finally, I was able to break. It took me four times to convince them. And the, the thing is that I've always done well, even though these people were knifing me, lying, smearing, and everything else about me. That I, because the people in the streets understood. The people in the battles understood where I met. And so my answer is to L.A. is get it together. I find it offensive that gay leadership is so jealous of somebody else. I find that offensive. I find that people who say, oh, well, but we owe this person like that. I said, bull. The reason is gay political clubs is to get the ultimate, is to get gays elected. That's why it exists, because we've been there. And then to walk away from gay candidates, unless they are unqualified, that's a different story. When I say unqualified, I mean when they, they really ask, uh, X, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> uh, X-rated, bleep. If they know good, if they turkeys, that's a different story. Well, if they're turkeys, they probably should never have gotten to the point where they're running in the first Well, no, turkeys can run. Anybody That's can true. run. Well, you I know. haven't seen that. Turkeys get elected. <laughs> God knows. But when you're faced with a, even if you're faced with a, a gay turkey and a straight turkey, you know, you go to the gay. And show me how many great non-gay candidates there really are. But to come up with the reasons that I read about, I just, well, I know that the gay candidates in L.A. were facing the same thing I did. My advice to them is that then work that much harder and throw out those so-called gay leaders who are not gay leaders, but they are self-perpetuating self-leaders, self-appointed, have never done anything to get broad-based support, elitist support, yes, or groups, of, yes, but never broad-based. very much like uh, David Goodstein, and yet I, and then no, I understand Goodstein opposite, did, not, did not support oh, you. Oh, Goodstein fought against me bitterly, bitterly, for and the then same threw, reason. And then threw a, then threw a victory well, party he, for you. he lost. <laughs> you know, at least he's smart enough to realize who won. He lost, and he understands 
Goodson was always against me. He used everything he could against me. And uh, he never met with me. Never understood what I was about. For whatever reason. But what you've got to do down in L.A. is if the, if the establishment will support straight people, like Goodstein supported Art Agnus over me, Goodstein was instrumental in getting Lane Noble out here over me, fine, he made a mistake. He admitted he made a mistake. But if the gay establishment doesn't understand what the gay movement's all about, you got to get rid of them. And I'm not telling you they're not the nice guys, not nice, wonderful people. I'm not talking about that they're fun people to be with. But if they don't understand what the gay movement's about, you got to get rid of them. And I'll tell you what the gay movement's about. After I got elected, I got the phone call I knew I'd eventually get. Got caught a few of them. One was from a 17-year-old child in a small town in Minnesota. And the boy is handicapped. And the boy's parents found out he's gay, and they want to put him in an insane asylum. And that boy needs help. And the gay moon is about the letter I got from Southwest Africa when he read about a gay person getting elected here. And that person has hope. And that 17-year-old kid in Minnesota has hope. And when we have gay leaders not understanding that and are more worried about their own personal power, they're not gay leaders. They're offensive. Everybody dance. <laughs> I love that song. It was amazing. That was Greg Gordon, who we still see every Saturday. He's yes, our news writer and producer of This Way Out. He is our sunbeam. <laughs> Hi, Greg. Hope you're listening. Yeah. Well, still to come, Wenzel Jones passes for straight. Nobody <laughs> was more surprised than I. This I gotta hear. On a flight to Vegas. That sounds like a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. Handout singer, songwriter, composer, producer, mentor to many, Lindsay Tomasic joins us in studio. So don't go away. We'll be right back. It's a puzzle coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. People collect all sorts of things from postage stamps to antique Christmas ornaments. Lesbian activist Loretta DeLaggio of Philadelphia has amassed a huge number of pin-on buttons related to lesbian and gay pride. In June of 1983, she spread them out on the table and thought, a picture of this would make a great puzzle. The idea took root, and along with her friend Isabella Lacey, they formed Coming Out Enterprises to produce and market the 500-piece 16-by-20-inch puzzle. They named the puzzle Gay Pride, and it retailed for $10 at Giovanni's Room at 12th and Pine Streets in Philadelphia. Today, more than 25 years later, the puzzle has made its way to the John J. Wilcox Jr. Archives at the William Way LGBT Community Center in Philadelphia. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Otto Conrad. Hello, my name is Cheyenne Jackson, and you may know me from the movies, television, or Broadway. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine every Monday night from 7 to 8 p.m. on KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, and 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, or streaming online at kpfk.org.
Welcome back. You're listening to I'm You Radio, and I'm Steve Pride. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I am still Chris Wilson. And before we go any further at all, <laughs> I've got to give a shout-out right now to my girl. Miss Barbecue is celebrating her 21st birthday tonight. Again? Again. And again. And again. And waving excitedly from the booth, so much love and hand waves to Barbecue. She doesn't look a day over 20. No. Well, from this distance. Good times. <laughs> you know... Every week, though, I look forward to being here at IMRU and hearing the wit and wisdom of Wenzel Jones. Um, Thank but, you. Yeah, One yeah, out of two isn't bad. <laughs> but just in case he's not bringing the wit and wisdom tonight, we have something pre-recorded. I was mistaken for a heterosexual once. A friend of mine, Janet, was getting married in Las Vegas. As she married later in life, and had little family to speak of, it was to be a merry affair at a pirate-themed hotel, with Janet's vast circle of friends discharging most of the duties. I was assuming the role of the father of the bride, since the actual one was dead, and my friend Patty, a woman of voluptuous proportions, was stepping in as maid of honor, or matron of honor, or whatever you call the woman with two marriages under her belt who had not yet leapt into her third. Patty and I were traveling on a Southwest Companion ticket, so we had to travel together. As Patty's 20th high school reunion was on the night of Janet's marriage, I had to leave with her soon after the wedding ceremony, and there was no time to get out of our wedding togs, which is how we came to be standing in McCarran Airport. All confirmed passengers should now be boarding at gate number D. I in my natty rented charcoal gray tux, Patty in a smart, albeit restrictive, pink suit the jacket of which clearly illustrated the expression 10 pounds of bologna in a six-pound bag. Mind you, the girls had already escaped their confinement once that day, just before the ceremony, in fact, so they were being restrained by the merest of safety pins. This is not a salient point, I just want to draw you the picture here. It was my first time traveling in formal wear, and I thought it was just the novelty of seeing a bow tie in steerage that was causing strangers to appear so interested in us. All too soon, I had the uncomfortable realization that the people in our waiting area were beginning to assume that we were newlyweds. Worse, Patty, who was no stranger to the ways of matrimony, was actively encouraging this fraud. By the time this was all clear to me, there was nothing I could do short of announcing, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but my dear friend, who is otherwise a lovely woman, has only the most casual acquaintance with honesty. So I smiled wanly while Patty explained to inquisitive travelers that our wedding bands were away being sized. A bit of chicanery so clumsy that for a moment I felt sorry for Patty for leaping into the waters of deceit when it was clear her skills in that area were so underdeveloped. This apparently mattered to no one. We couldn't pose for enough photographs or receive enough warm wishes. And since our flight was delayed, and more than once, there was plenty of time for both. Mind you, with the flight being delayed, we now had the element of Patty being on her cell phone, repeatedly calling the classmate awaiting her in Long Beach to let her know that she was running late and that said classmate should go ahead to the reunion and Patty would get there when she got there. These conversations were not delivered in quiet tones or code or even pig Latin, but people still persisted in believing that we had joined the ranks of the wed. For my part, I had run out of patience and settled into an attitude of resigned scandalization at Patty's impertinence. One would have thought that the most casual observer would surmise, if nothing else, that Patty had married a peevish man and a bad traveler and that the marriage was doomed. But this was not the case at all. 
it clearly was not what they wanted to see. Or perhaps this is what new grooms all look like. Or, most likely, nobody pays a bit of attention to a groom anyway. When the time finally came to board, the high number on our southwest boarding pass was waved away. Step to the front of the line, happy newlyweds. And so it went through the flight. There was, of course, the announcement over the intercom that... We have a new couple aboard, followed by the sort of alcohol-fueled applause indigenous to Vegas flights. The adorably boyish flight attendant, smartly attired in his khaki shorts, and doing a fine job of filling out his polo shirt, kept running free drinks to us. It seemed impolitic to ask his number, considering. But I was rather curious as to just how far he'd be willing to extend his goodwill. I thought I had an ally in the older woman sitting directly across from us. She had been privy to all of Patty's phone conversations, and it was clearly having none of it. I felt so bad at being party to such a transparent hoax, I couldn't even meet the woman's eyes. But after landing, as we got up to leave the plane, she grudgingly offered her congratulations and hopes for a glorious future. So Patty went off to her reunion, and I went home to my boyfriend. But for that period of three hours, I felt what it was like to be accepted as one who was playing the game and following the rules. And my, what a big, warm, hearty handshake that was. Wenzel Jones. And there you have it. You know, on Imory, we've been on for 40 years, and we've had people like David Sedaris. Yes. We have had people like Armistead Mop, and we've had Quentin Crisp. We have had... Winslow Jones. You yes, have you been have. had, Winslow Jones. I want more of that. That well, was excellent. Thank you. Well, that story was 20 years ago, so I'm hoping that I have one more event in my life I can write a story about. Something to live for. It is. Some days it's all I have to live for. Well, we, <laughs> yes. on, on that note, I live for music, as we know, and I am here with another musical guest. And before we hear her live in studio... Let's listen to some a song that Lindsay performs on her latest album called Sleeping Girl. Well, it's just about midnight, I can't get to sleep. Tossing and turning my thoughts so deep. Can't turn off the song running through my head. I won't feel a rhythm that rocks me slow. And takes me to a comforting place I know Please send me a cloud that can be my feather bed Why in the world is my brain wound up so tight? Restlessness on a cold December night Suddenly I want to get up and change the world Then right next to me is a beautiful sleeping girl oh. Well it's hours and way till the morning light The sound of my heartbeat is piercing the night Can't turn off Racing in my mind. Wow, that was really beautiful. That was the song Sleeping Girl 
um, from Lindsay Tomasek's latest album, but she's got so much more than that to tell us about, and I'm so happy that you're here with us, actually live in studio. I'm Welcome, so Lindsay. happy to be here. Thank you, Chris. Wow. You know, I've I've done a little bit of homework about you, and there's a lot to talk about. Really? Yeah, really. But <laughs> some of it we can't say on the radio. Okay. Um, I, but I did find out that you were not born with a guitar in your hand, but you acquired one by the time you were about four or five. How did that come about? Well, my first instrument was a was a ukulele when I was about four or five, and you know, you know, as you're growing, your hands get bigger. But when you're a little kid, you can't really put your full, you know, your arm, your hand around a guitar neck. So the ukulele made the most sense. And that was my first instrument. And I kind of knew that from there I would move into a guitar at some point. And your father, of course, was also a musician. So it just sort of uh, became your destiny. Yep, it's true. He was a he would play little riffs for uh, for me on the harmonica, and then he'd pass the harmonica over to me and ask me to play what he just played, and that's a very early memory of my first musical encounters. And this all was in Michigan? In Upper Michigan. I'm a youper from um, Dodgeville, Michigan. Dodgeville, Michigan, of course. Population 500. My goodness, really? You grew really? up in a town of 500 people? <laughs> I did. Wow. <laughs> but uh, you had a foray to Los Angeles with your, was it your first band, The Trees? Yes. Tell us about my, that. Well, you know, it was, I think, 1976. We were, um, we had a little job, day job working in a public library. And um, my partner, Jesse, and I were performing one day when um, a big fancy car pulled up and a woman came out of the car and needed to use the restroom. And she heard our harmonies and said, oh, my uh, boyfriend is a big producer in Los Angeles. And and you said, right. Yeah. And we were <laughs> like, sure. And, you know, then she, of course, gave us her phone number and said, if you're ever in the L.A. area, come on by. And, you know, Richard would love to produce you. And so... Um, How does that happen? Those you stories just... don't really happen. <laughs> I know. It was kind of like a little fairy tale or something. Wow. Yeah. So um, so we followed that dream. I think we had about a thousand bucks between all four of us, and we got in our 1967 Dodge van and drove from the UP of Michigan to LA. Ooh, Ooh the big city! The big city. And what we, was that we, like? we well, we thought it was hell. I wanted to get out immediately. However, um, it kind of, you know, fascinated me in a lot of ways because this is the capital of the music business. And, you know, I wanted to be, um, you know, a popular singer-songwriter. And so, um, you know, we went into the studio with this guy. We produced some songs, but he, his vision for us was to sound like the Captain and Tennille or the Carpenters. And, what would sell, more right, or less. What right. was popular at the time. And uh, we really didn't give him much of a chance. We had a, you know, we got back in that van about three months later and went back to Upper Michigan. How many of there were you in this band? There were three, and then, of course, our significant others. I see. Your significant (laughs) others were also musicians? No. No. No, they were not. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, they were patient people. Oh, so how, so what kind of music were you doing that was was not fitting into the pop music mold? Well, we were we were modeling ourselves after the Joni Mitchells, James Taylors, Carol Kings of the world, and that was a more you know acoustic singer songwriter direction. Yes, that we were interested in, but the producer we were working with wanted us to be very slick. Um, you know, lots of um, effects and, you know, this and that. And just stylistically, you know, changing the form of the song to fit um, into more of the pop format, which was undesirable to us. <laughs> but although you returned to Michigan, you weren't giving up on music. Oh, definitely not. But I knew that in um, upper Michigan, there were not that many opportunities um, however, 600 miles away was a little town or a little city called Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay, well, that's a town I've heard of. Yes. So we know it has more than 500 people. Yeah, there were more than 500. And so I um, just kind of took it upon myself to get out of the little town and head to Ann Arbor and try to, you know, make something of myself. Um, and then other members of Trees followed me to Ann Arbor, and we had a great 10-year run there as a very well-known um, local band. Well, and then you ended up coming back to L.A. Yes, in 1987, I came back to L.A. And what I know about that, I mean, there are, we know we talk about the luck of that first encounter with the producer and bring you out to L.A., and that was a great bit of luck. Yeah. But from what I understand <laughs> of your second foray into Los Angeles is you had to do a lot of work that time. Oh, yeah, I, I did. For the first um, six or seven years, I played in um, piano bar lounges but snuck in my acoustic guitar I, I learned a few tunes on the piano. I, you know, had to learn, like, Let It Be, and I Left My Heart in San Francisco, and My Way, to appeal to the food and beverage managers who, um, you know, wanted to see the nice young woman in a silky pantsuit sing singing, you know, standards. So my manager was very clever, and he appreciated my acoustic guitar playing and singing, and he said, look... Learn three or four tunes on the piano. When the food and beverage manager comes in, play those songs. And when he leaves, just switch back to guitar. So that's what I did. And I, you know, sustained a life of playing six nights a week at the New Otani Hotel. And, oh, yeah. And Gardens. Oh, yeah. In downtown L.A. And the L.A. Hilton, the Miramar Sheraton. And during the day, I was running a, a songwriter demo business. Yeah, and, and in fact, well, with all of those intros I gave you with all of the things that you do, um, you're well-known in as more of a songwriter-producer, doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work now. That's true. And actually, I think I realized when I was in my early 30s that if I wanted to you know, make a living that would sustain through my older years, that being a performer was probably not going to be the way I would do it. And I had learned to be a recording engineer when I was in my, you know, well, actually, I was interested in recording from the time I was about 10 years old. And I had a great mentor in Ann Arbor, Michigan, who actually taught me the basics, foundation of recording. And um, I wanted to become a producer who actually knew how to, you know, run the board and produce Bands. So that's what you've been doing. So that's what I've been doing. So what prompted you to record an album now? 
Um, well, this album I recorded a couple of years ago. I, you know, I always want to keep my um, imagination, you know, going. I love to write songs. And, you know, and because I own a studio and I have all the tools, I every time I write something, I want to produce it. And, you know, maybe about a year and a half ago, I decided I didn't want to perform so much anymore uh, with my original material, but I still wanted to make one more um, album. Of course, I am still continuing to write songs, and I'm thinking about maybe doing some more maybe solo, you know, singer-songwriter stuff around town. Well, you have a guitar, I notice, in yes, front I of do. you. I do. So let's have a little taste of Lindsay Tomasic, the singer-songwriter. Okay. I'm going to play a song for you called Blink. And um, instead of, you know, your typical pop song in 4-4, this is in 5-4. I wrote it when I was listening to a lot of Arabic kind of rhythms and getting inspired by that sort of thing. And it's a very percussive song. And it goes like this. Life goes by in a flash. Life goes by in a wink. Life goes by in a snap. Life goes by in a blink. Life goes by in a beat. Life goes by in a bar. Life goes by in a crash. Life goes by in a blink. So be an artist. Be a poet. It will go by me before you know it. Life goes by in a blink. 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 fell off in the middle of that. You know, and, and what I've noticed um, on the album, which is called Looking for Sunshine, so much of what you do is like, you know, I can relate to that. Yeah, life goes by in a blink. And, and the Sleeping Girl song that we played earlier in the thoughts in the middle of the night, yet here you are and here's somebody there with you. And um, it's just real stuff. It's real life stuff. 
Well, I think the older you get, the more real your material gets if you're a you know songwriter or a poet or a storyteller because of the experiences that you have, you know. So if somebody wanted to know more about you, where would they go on the Internet? Well, I currently have an interview that is posted on a site called um, reapmediazine.com. Com, I think. R-E-A-P? You know what? I can mm-hmm. I can help you out. If you just search Lindsay Tomasic, and if you search the word Shirley Craig, that's the interviewer, um, it's pretty easy to find because that's how I found it. And it's a great article because we can't talk about everything you do, like the theme song for the Roseanne Talk Show when she right. first had that. You know, we don't have a chance to talk about your amazing wow. credits yeah. in radio and television. Roseanne used to have a show on this very station. That's just one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I, no, I didn't even know that. Two and years. then hooking up with songwriter Lauren Wood, right. you know, and doing some work with her, you know. Well, and you can also go to lindsaytomasic.com. And that is spelled how? L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-T-O-M-A-S-I-C.com. Yeah, because, I mean, we there's literally no way to cover it all. No. And I hope that you're going to be planning to do some performances. We, if we, we've got a, another minute. If maybe you can tell us about this group called The Peculiars, which oh, is the first yeah. time I saw you live. I, I play with The Peculiars. We're a seven-piece band um, that does 60s and 70s covers. We do very happy, A lot of real happy, popular Super ones. happy pop songs. And um, people really love us. It's so funny. After years of doing my original material around L.A. and everything, people flock to hear the peculiar. Yes, they do. And I, and I have to say, I have firsthand knowledge that there's no such thing as payola on KPFK because I have been following and seeing the Peculiars. They are performing on August 31st at Cafe Cordial. But despite the fact that I've had Lindsay on my show and she knows what a big fan I am, I got my reservation in too late and they are sold out for tables. But if you want to see the Peculiars, you can still go to Cafe Cordial. You just won't have the table. And where is Cafe Cordial, Chris? It is on Ventura Boulevard. And in the Cordial, valley. In the in valley. valley. Oh, accessible. Yes, yeah, very totally accessible. accessible. I mean, it's it, they have great food. I have gone there before they start having live music, or at least earlier than when the live music starts. So, um, but now they're having live music, and now they're having bands like the Peculiars, and I hope we see more of Lindsay. Could I ask a silly question? Short. Well, of course, you're Wenzel. Thank you. Well, I, I'm so curious. When you were working the piano bars, and you would switch to, to the guitar, uh-huh. did people still drunkenly sing along with the guitar? Oh, absolutely. Yay. Absolutely. I wish Pe- I'd been people there loved the guitar. You don't remember Wenzel in particular, though. <laughs> She was catering more uh, to the yeah, convention crowd. You look a little crowd. familiar. You look a little familiar. <laughs> I was doing me. the seedy piano bars here in the valley. Oh. Yeah. Well, we are going to have to close, but stay tuned till the end of the show where you get to hear another track from Lindsay's latest CD. And more? That I personally like, and it's called The Best Friend Song. But for now, I just want to thank you, Lindsay, for being with us thank today. Thank you, Chris. And wish you every bit of success, and that's lindsaytomasic.com. Well, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage. Take timid politicos by the hand and exit to the far, far left of the tram's forward motion. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer Steve Pride, social media maven and birthday girl, Miss Barbecue, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And if you have comments or story suggestions, tweet us 
us or follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio or contact us directly via email at IMRU Radio at IMRU Radio.org. IMRU is simulcast available on demand at kpfk.org. It's also posted to the IMRU Radio Facebook page by noon every Tuesday. And as promised, we're going to close with the best friend song from Lindsay Tomasic. Good night. Good night. Why can't someone love me like my best friend? Indulge me when I show my gratitude. When I'm wrong and I admit it, lesson learned, then we forget it. It's not used as ammunition in the feud. She loves me not despite my flaws, but with them warts and all because. Many times she is and was a total bonehead too. Why can't someone help me like my best friend? Lovers have such complicated rules. Oh, why can't someone love me like my best friend? With motives that are pure and unconfused. It doesn't undermine a romance when my butt looks big in those pants. She just tells me and nobody feels abused. No hypersensitivities to natural proclivities. She simply shrugs her shoulders at my silly ways. I'm cool with them. Why can't someone love me like my best friend? Lovers have such complicated rules. I don't waste money on flowers or cards. Instead, I buy her stuff that she can use in the yard. On a scale of one to ten, from being easy to hire, she's a one or maybe three when she gets cranky and tired. Why can't someone love me like my best friend? Lovers have such complicated rules. With all the odd and quirky ways I see the world and make her crazy, she loves me even when I act a fool. She simplifies the thoughts I bring and hits the notes too high to sing. All the while remembering my favorite kinds of beats. Oh, why can't someone love me like my best friend? Lovers are so complicated, always seem to be frustrated. Lovers have such complicated rules. 